Let me invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hosea, and we'll be looking there in just a moment. Hosea, and we'll start there in chapter 1. After I sent Andrew some lesson titles, I was looking, and one of those titles is a lesson that I preached here last time. I'm going to still be preaching on the same topics, but I decided to rearrange this morning uh, a little bit. We're going to be still talking about marriage in all three of the lessons, um, but um, just maybe from a couple of different perspectives. Um, and this is one of the lessons we were already going to look at, but I've shifted it to the first to kind of set the tone. Um, I think that the book of Hosea, especially these first three chapters of Hosea, um, are, are some of the most um, compelling chapters, some of the most compelling verses that illustrate God's love for us. And it does so by illustrating it um, through the, the role of a husband. God puts himself in the position of a husband. Um, and he, he does that through the prophet Hosea. Hosea is the husband we're looking at. He's the physical husband. And that he represents the spiritual husband that we can't see. And so what, what God is saying to Israel through Hosea is, is this situation, when you look at Hosea's relationship, his marriage relationship, that's what my relationship with you looks like. And, uh, and so we gain some insight about marriage uh, and about the faithfulness of God in that relationship and then what our faithfulness and our love should look like in our relationships. And so I think using his love sort of as a foundation um, we can we can kind of begin there and then build on that and some of the other things that we talk about this morning. If you're not familiar with the book of Hosea, it is uh, one of the more dramatic prophets. God often calls his prophets to do things that would be pretty dramatic. So like, you know, he might he might call on one of his prophets to bake some bread using some pretty interesting ingredients. Uh, if you're familiar with that story, he might call on one of his prophets to build, like actually build a model of Jerusalem and then interact with that model. And so it's kind of a, you know, it's almost like we would do in a kid's class sometimes, the things that God asks prophets to do. It's very visual and very, you know, hands-on. Um, with Hosea, he really calls him to arrange his life in a way that makes the illustration. And in a dramatic and in a very emotional way he calls him to do that and what he calls him to do is to go and and marry a wife of harlotry and of course the wife of harlotry is going to illustrate Israel this is at a time if you are familiar with the the history of Israel it's during the divided kingdom it's during the reign of Jeroboam the second in the northern kingdom and Hosea is bringing that message to the northern kingdom and if you know anything about the divided kingdom, you might know that Jeroboam II is, um, is a descendant of Jehu. And Jehu was one who, who wiped out the family of Ahab and, and uh, put away the, the worship of Baal. But he didn't wipe out the idolatry of Jeroboam I. Okay? And so, sort of in reward for at least what he did do, God said, four generations of yours will be on the throne. And Jeroboam II is the third of those, fourth, of those four generations that he's promised. And it's the peak of Israel's, um, at least, economic existence, right? So they are, they are 
on the upswing, things are going very well for Israel. And it's at that time God begins to send prophets to them. He sends Amos, whose message is, you people, he calls them cows of Bashan. Um, you know, you're, you're sitting up there, you're, you're acting like, like um, spoiled cows and enjoying all that wealth and not using it responsibly. Then he sends Hosea, and Hosea is a little bit more tender message. Um, though certainly there's judgment uh, in this book as well. Well, he starts off that message, as I say, tenderly through Hosea saying, go and marry this wife of harlotry. Uh, Beginning in verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of uh, Diblaim, and she, um, she conceived and bore him a son. And we're going to look at the names of those sons here in just a moment. When he says, go take a wife of harlotry, he does not say, go and take a wife that you think might, over the course of time, become unfaithful. He says, go take a wife who you know is already unfaithful. Uh, Sometimes when commentators are writing uh, about Scripture, they want to paint things in the most positive light, right? They want to they want to pump sunshine wherever they can pump it. And I was reading an article about this particularly, and it said of Gomer, maybe, maybe Gomer, you know, maybe she started off with that sort of uh, innocent early love of Hosea, and she just drifted over into uh, harlotry. We want to want to want to speak well as much as we possibly can. Well, that's just not what the text says. The text says, go find a wife, and you, you know what she is. She knows what she is. Everybody knows what she is. And you go marry her. And you go have children with that kind of woman. So, the illustration, carrying it through, that here is uh, Gomer, representative of Israel, is that God did not go find a people who were faithful and then make them make them his own. And then they went away. God went and found a people who were already off in the woods. He, he came and found us while we were yet sinners. While we were rebels, God came to us. And so God in that relationship, as far as his part of that relationship, doesn't come to us and say, um, if you are virtuous and if you are faithful, then I will make you my own. He goes and he finds the spouse that's already um, uh, a problem. And what he hopes to do is make us not a problem. He hopes to take away uh, the sins that stain our garments. And we'll get to that later in the text. Now, don't, don't try to illustrate too much with the illustration. Sometimes we take illustrations too far. This doesn't mean that it's a good idea to go marry a wife of harlotry. You know, that's, a, that's not what he's saying. But from the standpoint of who God is and what it represents, it means God can do that. God can make us better than we started. And that's what he, um, that's what he hopes to illustrate here through Hosea. Well, we do have these three children produced. And uh, we, we uh, introduced the first one. She conceived and bore a son there in verse 3. The Lord said in verse 4 to name him Jezreel. 
for yet a little, uh, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now that's interesting. Jezreel is the valley. Uh, that is associated with the destruction of the house of Ahab. So I mentioned that earlier. Jehu, uh, he's the one that Elisha came and gave the prophecy to, and then Jehu goes driving furiously in, and, and he wipes out all the house of Ahab, all the sons of Ahab. And there's, there's blood in the valley of Jezreel on account of Jehu. Now, if you go back and read about that in the first Kings account, you'll, you'll see um, that that he's commended for that. You know, that, that that's a good thing in 2 Kings. That, that he's commended for, for what he's doing here and wiping out the house of Ahab. God wanted that to happen. But he falls short. And so he says, it is, it is good that you did this. Yet he did not, he did not drive out um, the perversions of Jeroboam, uh, the son of Nebat. And so, um, so he's, he's still to blame. There's a couple of things to, to suggest about that. Sometimes what we think are moral victories, if we are not truly devoted to God, those very things can become stains, right? Uh, there, there are times where we, we start in the right direction or we have, we have some moral um, rightness on our sides, but we're not really fully devoted to God. Maybe sometimes what happens is our desires happen to line up with God's desires. I think that's what happened with Jehu. Right? God wanted to be rid of Ahab. Well, just so happens Jehu wanted to be rid of Ahab. So it works out real good. But God also wanted to be rid of the golden calves that were in Bethel and up in Dan. Jehu did not want that. And so Jehu was willing to follow God so long as God was on the same page with Jehu. Well, that means he really wasn't following him in the first place. And so it's exposed. And so the very thing that, that Jehu and his family might have held up and said, here is proof of our devotion of God, God says, that's where judgment's coming. Because it's, it's not proof of your devotion to me. Well, so that's the first child's name. Judgment. Judgment's coming. But then the second two children get more personal. She conceived again, this is verse 6, and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhamah. For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forget them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by um, and will not deliver them by bow, um, by sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo Ruhama, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Lo Amma, for you are not my people. And I am not your God. Well, uh, there are uh, some chilling thoughts there. First of all, the thought that God would say, there is no mercy, no compassion. Incidentally, in both of these cases, low means no or not. All right. So in, in Hebrew, that, that low prefix there, low ruhama, ruhama means mercy or, or, or compassion. So I'm not going to have any of that for you. And then am I means people. So low am I, not my people, all right? So that's, it's just literally translated um, into what he says there. For I will no longer have compassion. We talk about the grace of God. And we talk about its abundance. 
we talk about uh, it, it is ever-present and ever-available. And yet, what God illustrates is there's a time where it will no longer be available. What a chilling thought for God to say, name your child. You know, what, what he's illustrating is the product of your harlotry is this, that I will have no compassion on you. Now, why? Why will I have no compassion on you? Because you're not my people. This, from a personal standpoint with, with Hosea, I think maybe there's an indication as to um, you know, his relationship to these children. What happens when you marry a wife of harlotry and she starts having kids? Well, there's a good chance they're not yours, right? I mean, that's, that's just the facts of the case. And, and God pushes that a little bit further. It's naming, not my child. Now, if we're not illustrated, if we just step away from this story for a minute, we, we might make points about, well, that's not the child's fault. I, I understand that, but God's making a point here. Don't, don't step outside the story and miss the point. He's saying when you engage in this kind of behavior, then what you produce is a people that are not mine. And that's what they've done. They've ignored God. They haven't devoted themselves to the sacrifices, to the worship of God. And so the result is, is that the increasing generations are more and more not God's people. Now they think they are. And when they get to the New Testament, they're still sort of leaning on that notion that just because they're children of Abraham, they're God's people. And he says, no, you're not. Now you're children of idolatry. You're children of harlotry. You're not my people. So, here is Hosea going through all that. And yet, beginning in verse 10, there is hope. It says, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. And they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, Emma, and to your sisters, Ruhamah. So, that's coming down through chapter 2 and, and verse 1, which I think is an unfortunate chapter break there. I think the idea is he's pointing to the future, and I think ultimately to a messianic age, saying it doesn't have to be this way, it doesn't have to stay that way. Right? So, so that is the state of things. No mercy. You're not my people. But all hope's not lost. I still want to bring this back around. I want to make you my people. And, and this very notion, Paul would pick up some of this very language. He, he would say to a people who are not my people, you are my people. Right? And he would say to a people who, who he said, there is no mercy, that there is mercy. If you would draw near, if you would come back, say to your brothers and sisters, you know, bring them back. And of course, ultimately the number of the sons of Israel is the spiritual sons of Israel, right? So it, it's really more of a, a spiritual connection uh, rather than simply flesh and blood. So it would not be the, the physical sons of Abraham, but rather those who would call God his. And among those who are not his people, he would make them his people. But then he turns his attention back to the mother. So the children, not my people, no mercy, judgment. They represent what's happening to Israel. But then the, the mother particularly represents Israel. So it says in verse 2, contend with your mother. So to these children that for, for where there's hope, he says, but now you've got, to, you've got to talk to your mother. Contend with her, for she is not my wife, 
and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her and her adultery from between her breasts. Or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness and make her like a desert land and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who has conceived them has acted shamefully. And she said, I will go after my lovers who will give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge her up. I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time, and my new wine in its season, and I will also take my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her, rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the bells when she used to offer sacrifices to them, and adorn her with her earrings and jewelry, and follow her lovers, so that she forget forgot me, declares the Lord. It is a pitiful state of things. And so, this is the judgment. This is what he says is coming. This is what's going to happen. It's going to happen because here's all of the things that she's done. Well, I'd like to skip, leave off at verse 14. We'll come back to that. And I'd like to come down to uh, chapter 3 and notice Hosea's pursuit of Gomer. So we're kind of going back and forth. We start out saying, go marry this wife of harlotry. She has these three children. They're representative. And we just kind of bleed over into the judgment that's coming on Israel. A little bit of hope sprinkled in there. Messianic hope. And then he's back to the judgment there, beginning of chapter 2. He talks about uh, some some restoration in the second part of chapter 2. But then chapter 3, we come back to Hosea himself and his relationship with Gomer. The Lord said to me, Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, you shall, uh, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Now again, we have some messianic language here uh, towards the end. Uh, that They would be without a king. We see that. And then, uh, and then they would come and, and the reestablishment of David, their king. And I think you see that as you get into the Gospels, you know, especially uh, Matthew and Luke, 
particularly Matthew talks about Jesus being uh, the son of David. You have those blind men who come to Jesus, son of David, heal us, right? So that, that's the fulfillment there. But let's focus back on Hosea here. Go love her. Go love a woman who's loved by her husband. And, and he says, but who is a harlot. And what he said, who doesn't love you back. Right? Go love her who doesn't love you back. When I talk to people who are having marriage trouble. And they're having a hard time loving their spouse. Inevitably, they're just saying, you know, this person is unlovable. What they really mean is this person does not love me. Right? This, this person is, is hard to get along with. They're hard to live with. Most likely, they're not Gomer. I mean, sometimes they may be, but, but most likely they're not. God just says, you know, can you imagine Hosea saying, what do I do? You go love her. That's what you do. What does that look like? Well, what it looks like is he goes and he loves this frivolous woman. Let me just suggest this about uh, the, the frivolousness there. Uh, when he talks about his own, he mingles his own love for the sons of Israel here. He says, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes... I don't know about you, but as I'm reading through this very serious charge and this very serious situation, raisin cakes kind of sticks out as strange, right? It's the sons of Israel who love raisin cakes. And you're like, you know, is, that, is it sinful to love raisin cakes? I think the idea is would be associated with Numbers chapter 13. You remember when the children of Israel are supposed to go in and take the land, they're supposed to conquer it, they've got God on their side, and what do they say? You, you know, back in Egypt, we had we had onions, and and we had fish, and you're like, yeah, and slavery, but but they just they blind all that out, they blind everything out, all the all the horrible aspects that go along with it, and say, man, but the onions are really good. Isn't that silly? What's that's this right here? I love a people. Who, who forget all the disaster that comes with turning away from God and says, yeah, but the raisin cakes are pretty good. They're ridiculous. You just roll your eyes. And God says, that's the people I love. So he tells Hosea, you go love a woman like that. She don't care. She loves ridiculous things. She ignores all of the value that you bring to the table and thinks that that very value that you bring to the table comes from all these other people. Go love her anyway. What does that look like? He says he bought her for himself. Why did he buy her? He's, first of all, he, she's already his. She's his wife. The only thing that I can think of that, that fits with that description is he would have had to have bought her if she has sold herself to someone else. She sold herself into slavery. Incidentally, the 15 shekels of silver plus the homer and a half of barley lines up with the price of a female slave. If you go back and look in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 32, if someone injured your female slave so that she became not useful to you, then they owed you 30 shekels of silver, which should sound familiar. But at any rate, he comes 
and he pays 15 shekels of silver, which means maybe he doesn't have the 30. So he brings resources along with that, the homer and a half of barley. And he gives what he has in order to buy his wife back from slavery. I don't know about you, but if my wife had been continually unfaithful to me and had sold herself into uh, uh, that sort of situation, you, you might be inclined to say to her, hey, that's your bed that you made for you to sleep in. I'm moving on. But he comes and he sees and he has compassion and he spends what he has in order to buy her back from her own mistakes, from her own pain that she brought on herself and says, you come and you stay with me. And you don't play the harlot anymore. I will be towards you what you're looking for out there. I'll feel the need that you're trying to satisfy. So that's what Hosea is called to do. To go be the, the Savior and the one who ransomed this woman who had put herself into slavery. That should all sound very familiar. You know, that's, that's us. We sell ourselves in slavery and God comes to us in our own situation. He comes to us in our own pigsty where we would eat the very things that the pigs are eating and God says, I will redeem you out of that situation. So, Hosea does. Well, I'd like to go a little bit further and then we will conclude our lesson. Uh, and by a little bit further, I mean deeper into the subject, but actually backing up to chapter 2 and verse 14. Chapter 2 and verse 14 beginning, we, we have a song. It's written in, in poetic language. And it picks up right after God has all of this judgment language. And it shows that God doesn't want that judgment. Well, he'd like to avoid that. And it says there in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. I will give her vineyards. I will give her her vineyards from there. And the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me a she, and will no longer call me Baali. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day, I will also make a covenant for them, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and then you will know the Lord. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond, respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine, to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And say to those who are not my people, you are my people. 
and they will say, you are my God. Again, some beautiful messianic language there. But backing up to the first here, I will allure her. One of the things that we see in the prophets, uh, as we as we're just going through and we're looking at at how the prophets speak, it can be pretty strong language. Um, Ezekiel's a good example that just I mean, I mean he has some very hard words, crude words even. Um, he talks about harlotry in very graphic language. Um, we see Amos has pretty hard words. Just talked about that briefly at the beginning of the lesson. And so there's a place for that. One of the things that also strikes me is intermixed with all of that hard language is the softness of the appeal as well. That God never stops that sort of tender saying, just would you please just come back. I think that when we look at the way that God approaches us, God has every right to only speak harshly to us. We do not deserve tender words from God. And there are times when we're communicating to each other in our houses where at least we feel like we have a right to have a harsh tone. Um, that's debatable. God, God certainly has the right. I don't know that we do. But nevertheless, even if you do, even, even if everybody is just totally misbehaving except you, you're not misbehaving, everybody else is. Well, that's God. And yet what does he do? He says, I'm going to speak tenderly to you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to appeal to you gently and with compassion. I'm going to try to win you over. I talk to marriage, uh, to couples sometimes about this who are having trouble many years into the marriage. And I, and I talk uh, maybe to a husband about trying to win your wife even though you've been married for 20 years. Well, what am I trying to win my wife for? She's already married to me for 20 years. For the same reason God's trying to win you. And of course, wives to husbands as well. No, it's, it's not a matter of what she deserves and what you deserve. It's a matter of what, what God has done for you. And so we approach with kindness and tenderness to one another, even if there is no deserving of it. He says that there will be hope in the very place where there has been judgment. I will give her her vineyards from there and the Valley of Achor as a door of hope. Now, if you're not familiar with the Valley of Achor, you, you probably do remember the story of Achan. If you go back to the book of Joshua, and after the story of Jericho, after they marched around the walls, and the walls came tumbling down, you remember that they were not supposed to take anything from the city. And Achan went in, and he did take from among the things of the city. In the next chapter, what we find is that after a, a loss at Ai, they realize somebody's done something wrong. They figure out it's, it's uh, Achan. And they take him and his family to the valley of Achor. And they stone them and they burn them. So, if you're an Israelite and you hear the valley of Achor, you don't think good things. And so for him to say that there will be 
the valley of Achor as a door of hope. That is not a door of hope. That's a door of judgment. You see, that's what would come into their minds. That's, that's the place where we stone and burn whole families. What I want to suggest to you is that the very thing that they think of as the, the symbol of judgment will become a symbol of hope. Well, again, that should sound familiar. The cross is a symbol of judgment. Well, we don't think of it that way. You think about that. Think about it in, in Rome, in about 29 A.D., Imagine going up to your average citizen and saying, you're familiar with crucifixions? Yes. You know, there are Roman commentators of the day, secular commentators, who would say that the, the word, the cross, crucifixion, was not a polite thing to even say in society. Can you imagine saying to somebody like that, one day, talking about the cross, we'll be talking about hope. That would be beyond their comprehension. But that's, that's how far God's willing to go. That I would make hopefulness out of the very thing that is judgment. He does the same thing talking about uh, Jezreel uh, a little bit later on. He says at the beginning there in verse 14 that he would bring her into the wilderness. I'd like to tie that with some things he says beginning in verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. Now, what is the betrothal? Well, that's that's where the marriage starts. It's a little bit more serious than an engagement. We break off engagements. In fact, sometimes I encourage people to break off engagements. And there's, like, no harm done, right? Maybe a little bit of harm, but, but no legal harm done, right? Betrothal was more serious than that. But it is the start of marriage. Right? So what is he saying? We'll go back to the beginning. We'll go back to like it was at the start. That's what he's saying in verse 14. When he says, I will bring her into the wilderness. That doesn't sound like a good thing. The wilderness is usually not a good thing. But that's where it started. You know, that's where it all started with Israel. We'll go back to, to where we all began. I don't know about you. My my marriage is, is a good marriage. But the notion of being able to go back and have the same sorts of sensations when you first got married, there's an appeal to that even when you've got a good marriage. Right? You, you, you just feel that, that energy when you see a young couple getting married. You want that. God says, I'll take you back there. After whatever's happened, However much water has gone under the bridge, let's go back to being betrothed. Like when we were first engaged. And I'll feel about you that way, and I'll let you feel about me that way. What a beautiful thing. And God says, no matter how bad off it's gotten, no matter how off course, I will take it back there. Can I suggest to you, that is possible in marriages. No matter how far off the rails you think things may be, well, things will never change here. They can. And that's what God has shown us. Especially through Him, we have the ability to go back to the betrothal. That He would consider Israel His virgin bride. That He'd consider us that. And that we could 
in our relationships consider one another. That's what love can do. It's what the love of God, with the sacrifice that he has been willing to make, and if we are willing to make, that we can do with one another. Well, then finally, in verse 16. Uh, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me a she and no longer call me Baali. Some of your translations may already translate those words into English, but both of those words get translated husband throughout the Old Testament. The word Baali gets translated husband generally in speaking of marriage as a contractual relationship. In other words, when, when God is legislating marriage laws that have to do with property ownership, uh, that have to do with um, like like a, a bride taken as, as booty in a war, you know, something like that, then Baali is the word used. So it's like, it's like ownership, right? Master, it's translated master very often. But then the word is she, that's the word that's used when we speak of husbands and wives in terms of the, the actual relationship. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy, when the military men are told that when they take a wife, that the husband shall stay home, not go to war with Israel, but shall stay home with his wife for a whole year in order to please her, then he's called Ishi, right? So that's, that's the relationship aspect of the husband. So the idea is, no longer are they just going to say, well, you know, God's a master. We've got to do what he says. No, they're going to look at me and they're going to look at me tenderly. And they're going to have that sort of relationship. It's the relationship God wants with his wife. Again, God has every right to only exert his authority and say, I'm in charge, you will do what I say. Doesn't he? It's not what I want. I want, I want love. And I want the relationship part. And I want you to look at me this way. So, Lots of examples there, lots of beauty in that marriage relationship. Uh, I hope to build on that foundation of God's love and, and us illustrating that as husbands and wives in our relationships with one another. Thank you for your good attention.